And the subject allotted to me this afternoon is the testimony of Elisha. And as we are continuing on to think about uh, the witness of the prophets and the testimony that they bore to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is my lot, therefore, to take up uh, this subject with regards to Elisha. And we want to come to these verses that have been read here in this portion. Second uh, Kings chapter 2, verses 19 uh, to 22. And we want to pick up on a particular theme uh, this evening. We can't cover all of Elisha's ministry and all of uh, his miracles that he performed. Uh, we, we just don't have the time to do that. It would be such a broad subject. Uh, so we're just narrowing in on one particular uh, part of his ministry and what happened very at the very early part of his ministry, as we will come to see. Now, as we know, Elisha became prophet in the room instead of Elijah. That day that the mantle fell from Elijah as he went up into heaven in the world when Elisha took up that mantle and he became prophet in the room <coughs> of Elijah. Elisha had also asked for the double portion of the Spirit of God that had rested upon his forerunner and upon his mentor and that did indeed come to pass. That was bestowed upon Elisha. That desire was granted by the Lord and it is subsequently recorded that during the ministry of Elisha that he went on to perform twice the number of miracles that Elijah did. And you can work that out, work through the, the, the various chapters that deal with these two men, Elijah and Elisha, and you'll be able to, to add them up and see that indeed that is the case that Elisha and the miracles that are recorded as being performed by him during his earthly ministry, that they are twice the number of those uh, that had been done by Elijah. And it is a very significant time, the, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. It's not every age, it is not with every prophet that the Lord was working miracles. The working of miracles was very rare, down through Old Testament times and they were, they were particularly chosen for a purpose and they signified something. They, they signified a new era starting, a new way. For example, when we think about Moses and the miracles that were done in the life of Moses and as we know there was a change there in how the Lord was ministering the, the covenant of grace to Old Testament saints and there was the bringing in of that period of the law and the mosaic economy and how there were miracles that introduced that and authenticated that. And now we're coming forward to the time of the prophets. And Elijah was the great prophet. And he's, he's used in scripture as the great representative of the prophets. And then immediately following on from Elijah, there's this man, Elisha. And this is a time of miracles as well. And therefore, this is a very special time. The introduction of the era of the, the prophets and their ministry. And it was again authenticated with miracles that were done by both of these prophets. So we're coming to the second of these men, Elisha. And it's interesting to remember that Elijah's last miracle was Elisha's first miracle. I'm, I'm referring there to the smiting of the waters of the Jordan. Uh, Elijah and Elisha had crossed over after Elijah had smitten the waters. If you go back there to verse 8 of this chapter, it says Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so they too went over on dry ground. 
So Elijah had done his last miracle in smiting the waters and then parting and the two men crossing over. And now that Elijah has gone up into heaven and Elisha has picked up his mantle, we're told that Elisha comes to the waters. And verse 13 of this chapter, it says, And he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over, and when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. So there was this authenticating of the ministry of Elisha. The Lord had authenticated the ministry of Elijah in a very dramatic fashion. Well, he's going to put the seal of approval upon the ministry of Elisha as he follows on his master and the Lord's servant. So there is this uh, first miracle that Elisha performs. (coughs) But the one that is unique to him as the very first of his ministry is the one that is before us here in verses 19 to 22. And we're told here how the men of the city of Jericho, that ancient city, Jericho is a very old city, but it was also a city associated with the curse. And they make known, the men of this city make known to Elisha the situation as they found it. And it's given to us there in verse 19 where they said, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth, but the water is not and the ground is barren. So here's their plight. The water is not and the ground is barren. And they make this known unto Elisha. And Elisha has a remedy for this barrenness and for this dryness. He commands that they bring him a new cruise. And the word cruise there has the, the meaning of a, of a jar or a bowl. And he tells him to put salt into this cruise. And having uh, been brought this cruise with the, the salt in it, verse 21 tells us that he goes forth to the spring of the waters and he casts the salt in to the spring of the waters and he does so with a thus saith the Lord and he declares I have healed these waters there shall not be from thence any more dearth any more death or barren land so Elisha performs this this miracle and the waters were healed you have the confirmation of that in verse 22 unto this day so it wasn't something that just happened for a a, a period of a day or even one day or a few days or a few weeks here was something that continued on and even when this book of second kings was being written it was still the case that these waters had been healed as a result of what Elisha had done that day when he cast the salt into the spring of the waters so you have here this reversal of the barrenness and the dryness that there was around the city, this ancient city of uh, Jericho. But that there's more to it here than just a reversal of the barrenness and the dryness that was there. What we also need to notice is that there is a reversal of the curse of sin. Because the barrenness and the dryness that was abroad was the fruit of the curse of sin upon the earth. Whether it's the curse in general that came upon all the earth when sin entered into the world, or whether that's that curse that came upon the land of Israel because of their particular sin, 
For example, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 23, it says, Thy heavens that is over thee, uh, thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. That was what the Lord said would be the consequences of forsaking the Lord and departure from him. The heavens would be brass, and then the earth would become iron. And not only would their prayers not be heard, but the, the, the heavens would be brass and that there would be no rain that would come. And if there's no rain, there's going to be nothing to moisten the ground and to water the ground and enable it to grow. There's going to be barrenness and dearth, and even death as well is going to come as a result of what will happen if the heavens indeed are brass, the earth is going to become iron. And that's what these men are indicating, that there's a dearth abroad, there's a barrenness abroad. But that barrenness and that dearth is ultimately traceable back to the curse of sin that is upon the world, or, as I say, upon the land of Israel, because of their particular sin. Now, all of these events and miracles in the Old Testament, we are told, are examples or types And they are written for our admonition, Paul tells us, upon whom the ends of the world are come. And that word admonition has the meaning of putting something into your mind and my mind. That's what that word admonition literally means, to put something into the mind. So when we think about this particular incident, about the healing of these waters and the taking away of this dryness and this barrenness, and particularly the connection with the curse that is upon the world and upon the earth, Here is something the Lord would put into our mind. This is an example or a type. And as we consider it, there's a thought that the Lord would put into our mind. A reversal of the curse. A reversal of barrenness and dryness that there is, even of death, that is mentioned here. And as we come to think about the, the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see that there's going to be a connection here that we can develop There's a multitude of references to both comings of the Lord Jesus in the Word of God. One is as important as the other. If we do not preach upon the second coming, how can we say that we are preaching the whole counsel of God, as Paul said he did? In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verse 27, he said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Well, all the counsel of God includes his second coming. It includes his first coming. Of that there is no doubt. But it also includes his second coming. The word of God is full of references and illustrations and examples and types that point forward to that coming in power and great glory that will take place yet one day. And this miracle of Elisha is just one of those examples that points forward to the second coming of Christ. And it is an illustration of what will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is the particular point that I want us to consider this afternoon in this conference meeting. It is the reversal of the curse that lies upon the earth at present. There is coming a time when there's going to be a reversal of the curse of sin upon the physical earth. And that is going to take place at the second coming of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And as you think of of what is here in these few verses, then we can think about other portions of Scripture, and we will, that tells us of such a time when there's going to be a far greater, far more widespread reversal of the curse. Elijah was able to reverse the curse by the power of God in, in a limited sense there around Jericho. 
as these men are making the need known to him, he's able to do it in a limited sense. But there's a day of power and glory coming when our Savior is going to do it in a far greater sense. He's going to do it across the whole world. He's going to do it across the whole world. So that's what I want us to consider this this afternoon. The reversal of the curse of sin upon the physical earth at the time of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first thing that I want you to consider here is the groaning of the creation at present under the curse of sin. The groaning of the creation at present under the curse of sin. Because that is how the Bible uh, describes the earth at present. The whole world, the whole of the created world is presently groaning under the effects of the curse of sin. You find something here about these, these men of the city of Jericho that they are lamenting and groaning under the dearth and the barrenness that is round about them at this particular time. But that can be expanded out to notice that there is a cry that goes up from the whole world. Not just from any one localized place. There is a cry that goes up from the whole world that bears witness to this. That the world is under the curse of sin. Even the physical world. Oh, we certainly know the curse of sin is upon the hearts and lives of individuals. It's within the hearts and lives of individuals. Man is a rebel. Man has turned against God and set himself on his own way. And there is the curse of sin that is in, upon, in his heart and upon his heart as a result of what took place with our first parents and sin entering into the world. But there's also a curse that came upon the physical earth. We're surely aware of that as we think about the scriptures and what the testimony of the scriptures have to say in regards to this matter. There's a curse upon the whole earth. Maybe we should just turn over and take those verses in in Genesis chapter 3 and remind ourselves of that curse that has come not only upon the hearts of men and women that were separated from God and alienated from him, but also the curse that has come upon the physical world. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 17. And unto Adam he said, This is the Lord, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and dust unto dust shalt thou return. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, is the little phrase to notice there in verse 17. There is a curse upon the physical earth. A curse upon the physical earth. But there's coming a day when that groaning that we notice and take note of and that the scripture mentions is going to indeed be reversed. So when you think here about these men of Jericho and the lament that they made to Elisha and how they bemoaned their circumstances, it is testimony to the fact that there is a cry goes up from all the earth, from the whole world, about the curse that is upon uh, the earth. Now, whether people, whether individuals make the connection between the effects and the curse of sin is another point entirely. Their lament arises nevertheless. They, they can lament their circumstances. 
They can lament the barrenness of the world. They can lament the dryness of it, even the death that is in the world. They can lament the circumstances in which they cultivate the earth and how difficult it is and the fact that it is done with the sweat of their brow. They can lament all of that and not necessarily make the connection with sin. And sadly, there are too many hearts that are blinded by this matter. And they don't see the testimony of even the physical earth to the curse of sin. Oh, they bemoan and they lament their circumstances in the earth, but they don't see the connection that the result of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, the barrenness and the dryness, the death, the death that there is, that is the result of sin. It is sin that has brought this upon the earth. <coughs> when the earth was first created, it was all very good as God looked upon it. But sin has changed everything. And now the Lord says to Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. As a result of what you've done, there's a curse upon the physical earth. And there is a lament. There is a lament that will go up as a result of this. The whole earth will lament. Please turn over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 and you will find a reference here to this very point. In this particular chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8, and it's verse 22. And verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So here's Paul writing about the physical world. He goes on there in some of in, uh, those verses as well to speak about the, 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 the believer, verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. So he comes on to talk about the redeemed in, in verse 23. But in verse 22, he's talking about the creation, the created world. And he says, the created world, the whole creation groaneth. Oh, not just a localized part of it, as we're noticing here in Second Kings uh, chapter 2 this evening, this afternoon, with regards to Uh, the men of Jericho, and what they were lamenting. Paul is highlighting the fact that there is a groaning that goes up from the whole creation. So when you think about this incident that happened in the life of Elisha, and the lament that was made to him by these men of Jericho about the circumstances that they found themselves in, it is but a testimony to the fact that there is a groaning that goes up across the face of the whole earth. A groaning over the curse of sin that there is upon the earth. The whole creation groaneth. Sin is the cause of that groaning that takes place. There's even sometimes the earth physically groans. If you ever listen to any of the accounts of individuals who have lived through a a major earthquake taking place. And some of them have even uh, uh, testified that that's what it sounds like. The earth is actually physically groaning. The noise of the earthquake as it takes place and as those plates move, it seems as if there's a a groaning sound that comes forth from the earth. And there are many earthquakes that have taken place and (coughs) are taking place. Testimony it is indeed to the curse that there is upon the earth. But is there not groanings that arise from many a heart over the barrenness of this world and the death that is in this world? Is that not something that <clears throat> is, is seen and heard? This world has the curse of sin upon it. Has the curse of sin upon it. Only Christ is the cure for sin. 
That is true in every circumstance. Only Christ is the cure. Only Christ can remedy sin and its consequences. Man is not going to be able to improve his circumstances. He's got this lot given to him in this world. That we labor in this world and we toil in this world. And there is a curse upon the earth. For all its fruitfulness, it still could be more fruitful. And how many parts of the earth are indeed fruitful? After all, there's only 30% of the, the surface of the earth has, uh, is earth. 70% of the, the surface is water. So you're down to 30%. But even how much of that 30% is usable? It's estimated that over half of that 30% is taken up with deserts and mountainous areas. So you're, you're reduced all the time to what is usable in the earth, to what can be put to fruitful use. And even then, there's all the difficulties to contend with, whether it's climate, whether it's weeds and thistles, as mentioned there in Genesis chapter 3. There's much to lament about, and there's a groaning that goes up from, from the earth. So when you think about this, uh, grow this lament of the, the men of Jericho that you find here in this portion. It is a reminder of a far greater lament and groaning that goes up across the face of the whole earth. The second thing I want you to consider is the release of creation from the curse of sin. The release of creation from the curse of sin. Again, that's illustrated here when we think of what Elisha did. And how he, with the power of the Spirit of God resting upon him, had the means at his disposal to remedy that barrenness and that dryness. He commands there in verse 20 of 2 Kings chapter 2, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. They did as he instructed them. And having been brought that cruise with salt in it, as we know, he took it to the spring of the waters and he cast it in to the spring of the waters. And there was this marvelous intervention of God. It was a miracle of God. You notice that there in verse 21 that Elisha said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. It wasn't thus saith Elisha. Elisha didn't say, I have healed these waters. I have the power. This is what I have done. No, that is not what Elisha has said at all. He has said, Thus saith the Lord. It is the Lord who has healed the waters. There is a miraculous marvelous intervention by God into the circumstances as they were at that particular time. That is how there is going to be this release, this localized release around Jericho at this particular time as Elisha casts the salt into this, the spring of the waters. And what a change took place. Yes, it's on a localized uh, level. It's around Jericho, this ancient city. But nevertheless, what an intervention from God this was. That he would so heal those waters and take away the, de the death and the barrenness that there is a marvellous intervention by God. And surely we can see a, a little pointer here to that time that is yet coming when there is going to be another marvellous intervention by God into this world. Not in any localised sense. Oh, an intervention that every eye will see, it tells us. When he comes the second time in power and in great glory, it's not coming in some localized sense. He's not going to manifest his power in some localized city. He's going to manifest his power that every eye will see him. 
Every individual on the earth will know that Jesus Christ indeed has come. There's going to be this future release of the whole creation from the bondage that it is presently in. And we notice there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 where it says the whole creation groaneth. The whole creation, the whole world, the whole created world which takes in the expanse of space. It all groans as a testimony of the curse of sin upon it. But there is coming a a marvellous intervention by God. A marvellous, a miraculous intervention by God in a coming day. A direct intervention by God in a coming day where he's going to release the whole creation. And what happened that day around Jericho was just a little harbinger. Just a little pointer. If we had but eyes to see it. Pointing us forward to something that will indeed resemble this but in a far grander scale. If I can take you back to Romans chapter 8. And I've drawn your attention there to verse 22. I want you to look now at verse 21. It says there, (coughs) because the creature, and it can be the word creation, it's the same word that appears in verse 22, so it can be creature or creation, because the, the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There is going to be a deliverance, it says. And what is going to be delivered? The creature or the creation, the created world is going to be delivered. As I've mentioned in verse 23, Paul is going on there to speak about what's going to happen to the redeemed. So here he's thinking about even the creatures that are in the world and the creation in general. It's going to be delivered from the bondage, the bondage of corruption that it is presently under. There is going to be this great intervention by God and this release of the whole creation from the bondage and the corruption. Now the salt that Elisha threw into the spring of the waters is interesting to to take note of. There's something symbolic here. There's something that that is worth noticing because that, that salt would purify any fountain is... Not something that can happen in a, in a physical sense. That, that's not a natural thing that's going to happen. To throw, throw salt into, into a, a, a fountain, throw it into the springs of water, and where there's a dry well, for example, that well is going to start and, and fill up and give abundance of water. That, that doesn't naturally happen just by throwing salt in. In fact, salt would seem to be a very strange substance to use because it would seem that it would make bad water even worse. It would become salty, bad water. It would neither be drinkable nor usable to irrigate the soil. As we know in in those countries where rainfall is very limited and they try to extract water from from other sources and some of them are using uh, seawater, well, they they have to extract the salt out of it. There has to be desalinization plants built in order to extract the salt out of the water in order to use it to give irrigation and help things to grow. So it seems a very strange thing to do here to use by Elisha that he would use salt in order to bring about this healing of these waters. But is it not something that points 
to the fact that it had to be of the Lord then, that it had to be a direct intervention by God, that it had to be a miracle by God. When it says there that the Lord said, I have healed these waters, was Elisha doing something that indicated this is not some natural process? This is not some natural event that will take place? This is something that that is unnatural. This is something that is supernatural. This is something that involves the intervention of God. And that's what exactly is going to happen with this world. God is going to intervene into this world. He's going to intervene. And that day that he intervenes with the coming again of his dear son is going to be the day when the whole world is released and the whole world is delivered from the bondage of the corruption that it is presently under. This day of release will coincide with the coming again of the Lord. There in Romans chapter 8, in verse 23, Paul is making that time to coincide with the redemption of the body, the resurrection of the body in glory of the saints. And we know when that is going to take place. The scripture is very clear about that. The redemption of the body, the resurrection of the body is going to take place when Christ appears the second time. So there isn't going to be a flourishing of the earth prior to his coming and a long period of time leading up to his coming. That's not what is suggested in the scriptures. And that's not what is set forth here either in in this picture that is before us. This comes about, this healing of the waters in a localized sense. That is very true. But nevertheless, these waters are healed by the direct intervention of God. And that's how it's going to be with regards to the whole world. The earth is going to groan until that day when Christ appears. There is not going to be some time of utopia and euphoria that's going to happen beforehand and there's going to be a flourishing of the earth and and things are going to get so much better and then sometime after that Christ will come. That is not what is suggested here and that is not what is suggested to us in the rest of the the scriptures either. The scriptures bear testimony to this point that there is going to be a direct intervention of God in the coming of his son. That's the day of release for the earth. That's the day of release. Now if you turn over to that other portion that was read earlier in the broadcast, Isaiah chapter 35 I want you to notice some uh, verses here in chapter 35. And before we do that, I want you to notice chapter 34. Because chapter 34 is a chapter to do with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what is here set before you. For example, look at verse 2, chapter 34 of Isaiah and verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. Uh, He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. That's going to take place in the day of his return. Verse 4, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. Revelation chapter 6 bears testimony that that's happening prior to the coming of the Lord. And we'll take one more verse here out of chapter 34 verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Again a verse that bears testimony that this is the coming of the Lord. The coming, (coughs) the day of his coming is the day of his vengeance. And it is the day when he is going to settle the controversy of Zion. 
Zechariah tells us that. So without prolonging the, the, the point, Isaiah chapter 34 is a chapter that has to do with the second coming of the Lord. That is clear and plain when you work your way down through those verses, verse by verse. And I'm just selecting three out of those verses for your attention at this particular time. Now, having said that, and then noticing that chapter 35 leads on. It comes on after chapter 34. So a a chapter that talks about his coming and his coming in vengeance and his coming to settle the controversy of Zion. Then you come to chapter 35. And I want you to look at... A few verses here, verse 1 and 2, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. This day of intervention that's going to have an effect upon the physical earth. Let's go down the chapter a little uh, bit to verses 7 and 8 it says the parched ground shall become a pool well isn't that what we're thinking about in 2nd Kings chapter 2 with regards to Elisha and the men of, of Jericho we're thinking about parched ground we're thinking about barren ground we're thinking about a, a, a ground that just brings death Nothing, nothing's living it won't sustain life and what do we read here? And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Verse 8, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. You could... Follow on down through the rest of the verses of the chapter. Do you see how these two chapters bear testimony to the same point? There is an intervention from God that is coming into this world and it is going to bring about, among other things, a release of the physical creation from its bondage. And you have testimony here in Isaiah chapter 35 and other portions as well that bear witness to this truth. There is a day of release that is coming for this world. Oh, it is an outward physical testimony of the release that will take place by the grace of God in the hearts and lives of redeemed souls. Because I've already said, I've made the connection there in Romans chapter 8, that when all of this is taking place, it is the day of the resurrection of the body. The first resurrection. The resurrection of the redeemed. Of those who have died in Christ and those who are alive on the earth who are in Christ. And as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. There's going to be a great day of release in that regard. The graves are going to be opened and the dead in Christ are going to rise and they're going to be released. But there's also going to be a day of release for the physical earth. That's the testimony of Scripture. A day of release at the coming of Christ. I trust we're going to be part of that day of release. That we have got a saving interest in Jesus Christ and we will know something of that release in our bodies, in the resurrected and the glorified bodies that we will have. And we'll observe the glory of God as it tells you there in Isaiah 35. The glory of God will be seen. May we indeed be those who will be eyewitnesses, participants in the events of that great day. 
in order to <clears throat> be part of that day. There has to be that experience of grace in our hearts. A saving work must be done. A regenerating work must be done. We must have Christ as our hope. And only then will we ever be able to take part in that day and observe the things that are going to take place. There's one final thing I want you to consider here. If you come back to 2 Kings chapter 2 and these verses that have to deal with this uh, miracle and the life of of Elisha, and that is the flourishing of creation. The flourishing of creation. And I want you to notice those words again that are mentioned here in this portion. Because thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. (coughs) We have been emphasizing that point. And then it says, there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. There is a flourishing. This wasn't something, as I say, lasted for a little time, a day or two days or a few weeks, a month, even a year. This was something that had even continued on around the city of Jericho until even the time when the book of Second Kings was written. There's a flourishing here. This reversal of the curse around the city of the curse. Remember that? Jericho is the city of the curse. The curse was put upon it when Joshua conquered it in the conquest of Canaan. That that curse came to pass because in the days of Ahab, the days of apostasy, there, there was an attempt to rebuild that city. A man, Hael, it tells us that he re- sought to rebuild it and the curse came to pass in his own family. It speaks about his firstborn son and his youngest son and the curse coming upon them and them losing their lives and the rebuilding of that city. That came to pass. Jericho is the city of the curse. Round about it there's the evidence of the curse that is upon the world in generally. There's death and barrenness. But as a result of this miracle of Elisha, there's a reversal of the curse around Jericho. And there's a flourishing as a result of the water that is here that has been healed, and the plentifulness of it now. And it says that there's no more death, and there's no more barren land. And that continues for many, many days, many, many years, right up until the time when this book was written. You see, that bears witness to the fact that there is indeed going to be a flourishing of the world when Jesus Christ comes. He's coming to reign. And during his reign on this earth, there's going to be a flourishing of the world. Malachi tells us that the Son of Righteousness is going to arise with healing in his wings. And we've been pointing out here that the Lord is saying, I have healed the waters. Well, there's coming a day, the scripture tells us, and the Son of Righteousness is coming, which is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us that he's going to arise with healing in his wings. He's coming for the the very same intention and the very same purpose. He's coming to heal the earth. He's coming to reverse the curse upon the earth. His reign is going to be glorious. There's going to be the establishment of a physical, social, economic order far different to anything the world has ever experienced. There's going to be a reversal of the curse. Oh, we cannot even begin to imagine what that means and what that entails. For we are so used to a world dominated by the curse of sin. But there's coming a day 
where there's going to be this reversal and there is, as a result of this reversal, there's going to be a flourishing, a flourishing of the world. Now there's many features of that that we could consider. We, we don't have time uh, and it's not our, our purpose. We're, we're, we're thinking about something here specifically to the, the life of Elisha. So we want to remain with that. But during that time, there's going to be universal justice and peace. A far cry from what there is today. Oh, a far cry from what there is today. There's going to be a curtailing of sickness and longevity of life. There's going to be social advancement and economic prosperity. There's going to be an increase in the knowledge and the worship of God. Oh, what a glorious thought. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Imagine that. Imagine that. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And how deep, my friend, are those waters that cover the seas? Some of them are miles deep. Those vast oceans and the great trenches that there are in the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean. And the Bible says there is coming a day when the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. It's not going to be a shallow knowledge. Oh, how often do we lament that today? The shallow knowledge that there is about the things of God. The shallow professions that there are. But there's coming a day when it's not going to be shallow professions of the Lord that is going to characterize the hearts of men and women. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And there's an illustration given for us to consider. As the waters cover the seas, there's going to be a depth to it. There's going to be substance to it. And what a glorious day that will be when nations will come to worship Christ in Jerusalem, it tells us. But that is not the the particular points that I want to to emphasize, I want to remain here with this uh, particular picture that is presented here with regards to Elisha and this miracle, where there's going to be this reversal of the curse upon the physical earth. I want to turn you to some scriptures that are is going to highlight this and, and show us something of the flourishing that is going to take place. Turn over, to first of all, to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. This is a psalm for Solomon, it tells us. A prayer for Solomon. But it, Solomon's kingdom typifies Jesus Christ's coming kingdom. There's some verses here that I want you to, to think about. Verse 6, it says, He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. Then let's go down to verse 16. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. There's the very word. There's going to be a time of flourishing. It's in that verse 16 of Psalm 72. The time when the handful of corn in the top of the earth, top of the mountains, the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth, a time of flourishing when the earth is released from its bondage. Let's keep going here as we as we come to a close. Isaiah chapter 30. If you would turn there and let's take a few verses out of out of this chapter. I'm limited in, in what verses I, I can I can read because of, of time, but let's take Isaiah 30 verse 23 another portion that that is referring to that time when Christ will return verse 23 then shall he give the rain of thy seed that thou shalt sow the ground with all and the bread of the increase of the earth and it shall be fat and plenteous in that day shall thy cattle feed in large pastures 
The oxen likewise and the young asses shall ear the ground that shall eat clean provender, which hath been winnowed with the shovel and with the fan, and there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every uh, high hill rivers and streams of water in the day of great slaughter when the towers fall. Again, a time of, of flourishing. Let's go over a little further. Ezekiel chapter 34 this time. Verses 25, 26 and 27. This is a very familiar portion, but I want you to understand the connection with the coming of the Lord and the release of the earth from its bondage. Ezekiel 34 verse 25. And I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land. And shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke. And delivered them out of the hand of those that served themselves of them. Oh we're very familiar with those words. There shall be showers of blessing. There's even a hymn that has those words in it so often. But those words are a reference to what will take place upon the earth when Christ returns. This time of flourishing that is going to come to the earth. So the next time you sing the hymn, there shall be showers of blessing. Remember where it comes from in the scriptures and remember the context as well. It has to do with the time of flourishing that will come upon the earth when Jesus Christ returns. One more and we're finished. Amos Chapter 9. I'm doing this to show you that the scripture is full of references. It's not just an odd little place where you have to take a verse and stretch it to uh, say something that it's not saying. The, The word of God is full of references to this time. And particularly to the release of the earth. Never mind those other points that are going to be a feature of Christ's reign as well. So Amos chapter 9 verse 13 and 14 it says, Behold, the day has come, saith the Lord, that the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit thereof. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. (coughs) I would suggest to you those words have never been fulfilled. But one day they will. One day they will. There is a time of flourishing that is coming to this earth when Christ will reverse the curse of sin and release the creation from its bondage. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. To be an eyewitness, to observe, consider these things, to be a participant in them. And my friend, may that indeed be true with regards to each and every one of us. May we be part of that day and the events of it. Not a day when he brings vengeance upon us, but no, a day when we are involved and part along with Christ of what is going to take place upon the earth. A glorious release, a reversal of the curse. My friend, may we rejoice in that, that God will display his power and his glory.